You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you will, if you have a Bible, if you turn to, uh, it's a little different than what your brochure says or your bulletin says. If you'll turn to Ephesians 4 and then Colossians 3. Um, Paula had to make the bulletins up ahead of time because she was going to be in Tennessee this week. And so at the time I was still kind of working through um, the message. So uh, we're going to look at Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 3, Colossians 3, uh, Primarily here in this moment, we're going to read verses 12 through 14, but we're going to look at Colossians in a bigger chunk today as we go through this message. And today we are still in our One Another's series, and the One Another's today is that we are to bear with one another. And as we're going to talk today, the issue of bearing with one another really is a word or a phrase that means to endure. Uh, And if you think about maybe things in your life that you've had to endure, um, usually when we think of endure or enduring, um, those things are not pleasant. (laughs) Uh, Typically, if you're enjoying something, no one says, I had to endure a great meal last night, you know. Uh, So if you think along those terms, that kind of gives you a a, a preview or an insight to how we're going to be challenged today in terms of our relationship with one another in the body of Christ. So first, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, just so we can sort of see the parallel there, and then over uh, just a couple pages to your right to Colossians 3, 12 through 14, if you'll follow along with me. Paul writes to the Ephesians, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then to the church of Colossae in chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. His commands there. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Today, we're going to primarily focus on this Colossians passage. We're actually going to go back to the very beginning of chapter 3 in just a moment. But I wanted to read that Ephesians passage because I wanted you to see some of those similarities of humility and gentleness and patience. Um, this week, when, we, when I do our, uh, the pastoral blog post that's on our website each week, I'm going to look back at that Ephesians passage a little bit deeper. And as well, I'm also going to talk about Galatians 6, where there's a different kind of bearing with one another. It's bearing one another's burdens, and it's a little different than what we're talking about today. Uh, so you'll want to follow up on that this week as that gets published. But I, I want to deal with Colossians 3 in a little bit of a bigger spectrum Because I think Colossians really provides us some very foundational principles for this series called The One Another's. It provides us some some basis, some some building blocks that we need to have if we're going to uh, work through all of these One Another segments uh, this month, next month, as we've been going through those and really been put those into practice into uh, our, our body of life. 
So the first thing I want to talk about is found from Colossians 3, 1 through 4. And it's this, that we need to determine our spiritual identity. And when I say determine, I don't mean that we necessarily decide what our spiritual identity is. What we're going to see is the scripture is going to decide that for us. But we need to determine it in that we become fixed in it. We become fixed in our spiritual identity. So look at Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Paul says this, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I believe the Bible teaches two things as far as spiritual identity is concerned. One, I believe it teaches spiritual identity is immediate. We know John 3.16, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus says later in John's gospel, in John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. It's an immediate change to our spiritual identity when we say yes to Jesus. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, said if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And so on and on throughout the scriptures, the Bible teaches that our spiritual identity as being one in Christ is immediate in our decision to follow him and through our faith. But the Bible also teaches that our spiritual identity then is drawn out or is prolonged over time. This is what is called sanctification. And sanctification is merely the process of becoming more and more devoted to God, especially in our holy living and our actions. Oswald Chambers, uh, who, was, uh, who famously sparked the What Would Jesus Do movement by his devotional that he wrote, says this, Sanctification means nothing less than the holiness of Jesus becoming mine and then being exhibited in my life. Sanctification is nothing less than the holiness of Jesus coming into our possession and then being exhibited into our lives. And the Bible teaches that we have been sanctified in order to be sanctified. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 gives us this long list of, of behaviors and lifestyles and, and actions of people who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then he says this in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6, Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. He lists sanctified as the first thing that happens there. Why? Because we are made holy in Christ so that we can then live holy. If you are not made holy, you have no chance of living holy. And so we have this sanctification, this growth of our spiritual identity that begins with faith in Christ and then is moved about by his presence, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So verses 1 through 4 here in Colossians are all about this spiritual identity. In verse 1 and 2, it's about our position as our spiritual identity. He says, we have been raised with Christ. And some translations say, if then you've been raised. Some say, since then. The, the English since then is really the more uh, proper understanding of what Paul's writing about here. Uh, Paul is writing with the assumption that all who are reading this letter in the church are indeed saved. 
It's not a I hope I am, but it is since then you are in Christ. Understand you are raised with Christ. And what does being raised with Christ means? It means just as he was raised to a new biological life out of the grave, we become raised in a spiritual newness through Christ. It's the picture of baptism. If you uh, take some time this week to read back through Colossians chapter 2, you'll see in verses 11 and 12 where he talks about this image of baptism that in, we are buried with Christ and then we are raised. It's why we take them up out of the water, right? Because we are identifying as being raised with Christ to new life. And so in this raising, he says, we position our minds to things above. Look at what he says there again in verse Uh, Verses 1 and 2. If then, or since then, you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things on the earth. It, It basically just means that our attention and our thoughts become heavenly. Now, what it what it really is guiding us to here, I believe, is this that that perspective that we have, that identity, that position that we have, that we are already raised with Christ to newness, becomes the lens by which we view everything around us. So when there's a natural disaster, when there's trouble in my life, when there's medical situations, when there's uh, discomfort in my life, when there's goodness in my life, in all of those things, because we are raised with Christ, we seek to view those things through this sort of very heavenly lens. Setting our minds and our thoughts on things above doesn't mean that we just don't worry about anything on the earth, but we view them in a very different way. It doesn't mean we abandon the earth or abandon earthly living. The great theologian Johnny Cash had a song called No Earthly Good, and this is just part of one of the lyrics that he wrote in that. He said, if you're holding heaven, then spread it around. There's hungry hands reaching up here from the ground. Move over and share the high ground where you stood. You're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Paul's not describing us to be so heavenly minded that we just abandon everything around us here on earth. There's a mission. There's a kingdom purpose for you as an individual, for us as a church, for every other church that's meeting today or that met last night or that will meet Tuesday. And so setting our minds and our thoughts on heaven doesn't mean we go, I'm just not going to worry about what's going on around me, but it means that we, we look at it in a different sense. And so that's our position. That's our spiritual identity position that we are raised with Christ. Then in verses 3 and 4, he gives us three very distinct understandings of that position. Look at what he says there, beginning in verse 3. For you have died. It's the, verse, the first very distinct understanding. It's a past statement in your life and my life for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. What does it mean? It means we have died to the power and the mastery of sin. We have died to the importance of the things of this world. The lures of this world, the things that, that the rest of the world chases after, we have died to those things. To the power of sin, to the mastery of sin, the scripture says we have died to those things. And this is not the only place that it's found in the scriptures. And every place it's found, it is put in this sense that it is a past completed action for those who are found in Jesus Christ. It is a done deal. So what does that tell us? 
that tells us that in my life and your life, anytime we do not live under, under this, we, anytime we allow sin to become our master, anytime we allow the power of sin to infiltrate our lives, anytime we go after the things of the world, we are giving that new life. We are the ones resurrecting that in our lives because the scripture says we have died to those things. I liken it to a, to a tiny ember in a campfire, right? And, and if, you, if you're a fan of the show Survivor, uh, they, they get back to their camp oftentimes, particularly after a storm or something, and they're trying to, to get their fire, and they're just searching through all the ashes, looking for one tiny ember that they can begin to blow on and get some oxygen on to, to build that fire. And these things that are of the world, these sins, these masteries of sins, these things are things that sometimes we give oxygen to. But it's not what God's plan is for us. For he says what he has done in our spiritual identity is we have died. So that's our past. Then he gives us a present understanding. Look there again at verse 3. For you have died, past, and your life is hidden with Christ in God, present. Your life as as a believer in Jesus Christ is hidden with Christ in God. I love this word hidden. It's a word that means to become unknown by virtue of concealment. Okay? So it's a word that means if my life is hidden in Christ, I should be so hidden in him that nobody knows me. But everybody that knows me knows Jesus. When I was a youth pastor at a previous church in my ministry, uh, every fall we would take the kids uh, to play paintball. Because nothing says the love of Jesus like a paintball hurtling at 60 feet a second, right? And, um, <clears throat> and uh, we typically went to a place in Evansville, Indiana. It was a, a wooded area, and so we would go and play different games. And I'm, I'm not a hunter. I don't mind people that hunt. It's just not for me. So I usually had to borrow camouflage or something. But there was one year that I found some camouflage on sale at Walmart on clearance, and it was this leaf pattern, Right? And so we were in this location in Indiana during the fall of the year, and, and they split us up, adults versus kids, because that's always how you split up, because there's an inherent glee in adults blasting away at kids, right? And, um, and uh, they, they split us up to our two areas, and as we were walking through, I noticed there was an area where like three walking trails kind of converged. And what I knew from previous experiences was this. Kids didn't know how to play. And they weren't about to crawl on their belly like through brush and thickets and stuff. They found walking trails and they walked to try to get to wherever they were going, right? So, so as we were preparing to, to defend our area, I had a friend of mine. I laid down on my back and I had a friend of mine take some leaves around me and kind of cover the soles of my shoes and scatter it over me and over my face mask and stuff to where I could just see. And I had the paintball gun sitting right here on the ground with just the barrel exposed. And man, them kids would come down the tree and I'd just pew, pew, pew. <laughs> now here's two other things you need to understand about kids and paintball. Number one, though they are out at that moment, what they like to do is they're over there, Right? They like to tell on you. But the second thing that you need to understand, again, is that they weren't very observant. And I would hit them, and they would look around and look around and look around, and they never saw me (laughs) because I was so hidden in that camouflage. I just looked like the floor of those woods. 
When Paul says we are hidden with Christ, that's what he's describing. That our lives are so hidden with Christ in God that no one should see us. But they should see Jesus. And secondly, I think he has another understanding for it here is that when God sees us, he sees Jesus. He sees my failures and yours when he sees those moments that we blow oxygen on that ember of sin and allow it to flourish. He looks at us in that way. We are so hidden with Christ. What he sees is his son. That's who we're to be in our present day. And then thirdly, he gives us his future understanding. He says, when you're hidden in Christ, verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There's a future understanding to our spiritual identity, and that is that one day we will see Jesus and then appear with him in the full glory that he has designed for us. Now, I often hear Christians remark about that day with great anticipation But let me just be honest, I often hear Christians, and I've been guilty of it myself, say things like, oh, I can't wait for that day because I'm going to go see so-and-so, or I'm going to go see so-and-so, or I'm going to go ask this famous person in history what he or she was thinking in that, like we have all that. But I think what Paul's wanting to drive home here is this, the greatest thing in that day is that we see him. I'm as, I'm as excited as y'all are about seeing family members that have gone on. I'm as excited as you all are about seeing whatever it is he has prepared for me for eternity. But first and foremost and forever through eternity, it's that I'm going to see him. I'm going to see him because my life was hidden in him. And it's only because my life is hidden in him that I even have a shot at that. And so Paul's teaching this as a spiritual identity. This is what it means, he says, to know who you are in Jesus. So secondly, he then says, looking on to Colossians 3, 5 through 11, put to death then what doesn't match that spiritual identity. So if you and I are raised with him, If you and I are to look at things of this earth in a heavenly sense, if you and I are to anticipate being with him and and we're to be grateful that our life is so hidden with him, what Paul says then is put to death everything that doesn't match your identity. Now, the the question may arise here, well, I thought you just said we've died. Why, Why, if we have died, do we have to put to death? Well, God, by his definite plan, leaves us here after he saves us. God, by his definite plan, chooses to renew you and me from within, not to remove us from what plagues us. And God, in his definite plan of Scripture, chooses to have you and me on this earth become more and more like his son. A smattering of Scriptures that teach this, but I'll just share with you today from John's letter, 1 John 2. Verses 5 and 6, he says, By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The the, the letter of 1 John really is this whole letter that just reinforces to the person who reads it, I'm either in Jesus or I'm not. 
And John's intent is clear. He says in chapter 5, verse 13, I have written these things so that you'll know, right? But all along his letter, he gives us little nuggets like this. You say you abide in him, then you ought to be walking as he walked. And so if God simply took us to heaven after we became saved, if he just removed us from here, we would never have opportunity for this to take place in our lives, to become like Christ, to walk as he walked. So similar to the first point where I talked about sanctification, that we've been made holy so that we can live holy, we have died so that we can die. We have died with Christ so that we can continually die to the things of this world. Now, Paul lists here from verses 5 through 11 all sorts of vices and practices and things that are, that are contrary to the Christian life. And we're actually going to return to this passage in a few weeks. If you look at verse 9 there, uh, verse 9 he says, Do not lie to one another seeing you've put off the old self with its practices. And so that's actually going to be part of a, of a sermon in this series in a few weeks. So I'm not going to deal with all that verses 5 through 11 have to say, but I want you to look today at verse 11 specifically for this understanding. We're to put to death all these things because, verse 11, here, meaning in the body of Christ, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This whole series, these teachings of the one another's are all about how we live as individuals within the context of the community of the body of Christ. And Paul's writings here are, are very, very explicit in terms of where he says we find common ground with one another. It's very similar, if you want to read it this week, it's very similar to Galatians 3, verses 25 through 29, where he writes something very similar to that church. But what he teaches here in verse 11 is we put to death all this other stuff because the one thing that unites us, the one thing that brings us together, the one thing that gives us life is that we are in Christ. Christ in us, he is all and is in all. And so he does so by teaching earthly barriers should not be in play within the body of Christ. He says there's no Greek and Jew. His intent there is to say this, there should be no ethnic or racial barriers within the body of Christ. It doesn't mean that the Greek becomes the Jew or the Jew becomes the Greek. And in our day, in our time, it doesn't mean that a black person becomes a white person, a white person becomes a black person as a Hispanic person becomes an Asian. It doesn't mean that we all begin to look like and act alike and like the same things, but that we find our commonality in Jesus Christ, and we do not allow ethnic racial things to divide. And I'm just going to say it, if that's still an issue for you, you need to repent before the throne of God, because it's not an issue for him. He came to destroy barriers like that. The second barrier then, he says, there's no circumcised or uncircumcised, meaning there's no religious barriers. Now, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago in a message. I'm not suggesting, and I don't think Paul is suggesting here, that where we have differences on issues that are vital to salvation and the truth of God, we should be together. If you deny the virgin birth, if you deny that Jesus actually died on the cross, if you think that they just came and stole his body and he wasn't really resurrected, that's an issue. 
But if you believe one of the four theories of how he's coming back, and I believe another of the four theories of how he's coming back, we still have commonality in him. And so among those kinds of issues, he says there's no division, there's no barrier there. He then lists barbarian and Scythian. Now, that may be not as clear or as plain as the other ones, but basically what he means here is that there are no cultural barriers. More no cultural barriers. Barbarians were thought of as being unrefined, unintelligent, without cultural grace. And the Scythian was the worst of the barbarian. So Paul's saying essentially here that you don't look at someone else who, who maybe isn't as refined as you, maybe doesn't enjoy the same things as you, maybe culturally appropriates things differently than you. You don't look at them and allow that to be a barrier. And then fourthly, he lists, for that day and time, no slave, no free. No social barriers. That the servant and the master could worship in the same church in the New Testament, side by side, finding their commonality and their equal ground in Christ. Uh, Our social barriers, barriers sometimes these days are things like wealth or politics or power or uh, even sometimes family lines, right? No social barriers. He says, instead, the church finds this common ground in Jesus. Christ is all, he says. He is all your salvation. He is all your righteousness. He is all your holiness. He is all your power. He is all your purpose. He is all your position. He is all of your love, all of your grace, all of your mercy. He is everything. And he is, according to Paul here, as he finishes that off, Christ is all and in all. Every believer in the body of Christ is found in Jesus and nothing else. Any entity, any ideology, any teaching that suggests that you and I have a commonality other than Jesus to describe what it means to be a saved person is a lie, as my father-in-law likes to so eloquently put it, Straight from the pit of hell. He does it with a little more drawl than I did, but it's a lie. Just this week, the Russian Orthodox Church lead, Patriarch Kirill, was talking about the war with Ukraine, and he said this as a part of a statement. He was talking about Russian soldiers who had died or would die. And he said this, We believe this sacrifice, dying in this war, washes away all the sins that a person has committed. Commonality not in Jesus, but commonality in dying in a war. Now, lest you think, well, that's just crazy and that's just over there, let me me throw one that's in our culture right now. Past couple weeks, a prominent Southern Baptist leader said at a conference that those who do not vote or those who vote, quote, wrong, are unfaithful to God. Now we can have a healthy spirit of debate on whether you should vote, how you should vote. I think you should vote. We have a freedom to be able to vote and have a say in our government. I think you should. But nowhere in the scriptures does it say, you are saved by grace, oh, and how you vote. Or you're saved by grace, and if you vote. 
Somebody says, well, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't existing for their culture in that time. You're right, it wasn't. But if you believe that the Bible answers all questions, don't you think that God is, in his infinite wisdom would say to one of the writers, Paul, Peter, James, somebody, oh, by the way, at some point there's going to be people in my name who have the opportunity to vote. Make sure you include this in this letter. Our commonality is only found in Jesus Christ. We put to death what doesn't match our identity so that together we find our commonality in Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, looking at verses 12 and following, after we put those things to death, then we demonstrate what does match our identity. Warren Wiersbe in his commentary says this about this part in in, uh, Colossians 3. It does little good if Christians declare and defend truth, but fail to demonstrate it in their lives. You can get a lot of Facebook followers and Twitter followers and Instagram followers and invited to a lot of conventions by being loud and noisy, declaring and defending truth. But if you're not demonstrating truth, it's not doing much for us. Paul uses a very common phrase here. Look at verse 12 as we begin to walk through this. He says, put on then. I'll stop right there for just a moment. Put on then. He uses this in a lot of his writings. Romans 13, Ephesians 4 and 6, 1 Thessalonians 5. It is quite literally the phrase that would have also been used in their day and time of putting on a piece of clothing. So he says, put on these things. He quite literally, in all the places he uses it, he quite literally is saying to us, this is an action. This is a choice. This is something we choose to do. When I was working um, at, at, a, at another location prior to becoming a pastor, um, I'd been there a couple years, hadn't really moved up any in the company, and I, I sought out the advice of a guy who was higher up in that company than me. And and um, I was just a, a customer service rep at the time in a little cubicle answering phones and that kind of thing. And at the time, I had aspirations of really kind of climbing high in that company. And I asked him, I said, what are things that I can do? What are things that I can do to advance? And one of the first things he said to me was, stop dressing for the job you have and start dressing for the job you want. Stop coming in in ripped jeans and tennis shoes and old ratty t-shirt and start dressing for the job you want. Now, I, I think about that and I think about Paul saying put on then and this idea of it being like clothing and I think as Christians, we should dress for what we want. Not more rewards, not, not that Jesus gives us greater things or God, but we should dress to want to put on the best clothing, the best righteousness, the best holiness, the best Jesus for those around us. We shouldn't be satisfied with where we are. We ought to be putting these things on for God to increase our sanctification. And so look at how he puts it here. Put on then, verse 12, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. That in that Ephesians passage I read, it said this, with all humility and gentleness and with patience. Paul repeats those three things specifically here in these two passages. And so what we begin to learn here is these things that Paul lists, both here in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 and other places, are absolutely fundamental for us to fulfill these one another scriptures to one another. 
If we have not humility, if we have not gentleness, if we have not patience, if we have not compassionate hearts, if we have not kindness, then you can forget the hope of ever fulfilling all of these one another's to one another. These are the building blocks. But again, these are the building blocks based on our identity with Jesus. And he says that verse 12 leading into verse 13 for really our key phrase of the morning. Put on these things. What's the purpose for it? Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Just put on all these things, kindness, gentleness, meekness, humility, patience. Put on all these things so that, I'm going to take you all the way back to the beginning of the sermon, right? I said this idea of bearing with is enduring, having endurance with one another. Put on all these things so that you can bear with one another. And it's, it's a word that means to endure something unpleasant or difficult on your own behalf or on behalf of someone else. What, what does that mean, on your own behalf or on uh, the behalf of someone else? Well, uh, on your own behalf, if, if, you, if you have a medical situation today, there, there are tons of people within this building and, and who are watching online who pray for you, who empathize with you, who, who want to help you, but you're the only one that can actually bear that discomfort. It would be wonderful if we could take that pain from you. It would be wonderful if we could spread it around to some of the more healthy folks <laughs> so y'all could bear it, right? But on your behalf, you're the only one that can bear with or endure that. But on someone else's behalf is really where the one another piece comes in, in that we often have to endure things that are difficult or unpleasant because of someone else. Let me tell you a place that Jesus used this. Matthew 17, he comes up to the crowd. A man comes to him wanting healing for his son. He says, I brought him to the disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus says in verse 17 of Matthew 17, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? You know, I know we like to think of Jesus as just full of grace and, you know, kind of floating around and... Jesus is incredibly frustrated in this moment because at this moment, his disciples have seen his works. His disciples have been taught by him to go and do likewise. And in this moment, they could not do it. And Jesus has frustration. How long do I have to bear with you? Now, side note to that for just a second before I go further. Note something there. Jesus doesn't go and get new disciples. Jesus doesn't say, how long do I have to endure with you? I'm done. I'm going to go find 12 who will listen. Jesus continues to bear with. Though he's frustrated, yes. Though he desires more for them, yes. He doesn't leave them. He endures and bears with them. And what we need to understand in this bearing with one another, it doesn't mean unpleasant, difficult situations go away. It simply means we work through them. We work through them with one another. There's a, a, a powerful little book I would encourage you to, to purchase called Resolving Everyday Conflict. It's a short read, small book, 
and I'm going to refer to it a couple times here today. It would, it would be helpful to you not only in dealing with conflict in the church, but it would be helpful to you in dealing with conflict in your family, dealing with conflict where you work, and anywhere in your life where you may have conflict, it would be good for you, resolving everyday conflict. But in this little card that comes with it, it talks about what happens when conflict happens, and it gives three responses. The first is to escape. And people that escape conflict either deny that there's any conflict or they just flee. There's conflict, I don't want anything to do with it, I'm out. Or they just go about their daily business, ah, everything's fine, it's not a big deal. There is an attack response, which is when they begin to blame other people or actually even verbally assault other people. But there's a peacemaking response that belongs to the Christian. And it includes things like being real, being transparent with one another, engaging one another in that spirit of humility and gentleness and patience, and being intentional to get together with one another to work through the situation. That is a perfect understanding of what it means to bear with one another. When there is conflict in the body of Christ, denial or attack are never godly responses. But when there's conflict in the body of Christ coming together in gentleness and humility and patience, seeking to have conversations, seeking to discuss those things, those are the things that make up what it means to bear with one another, to endure with one another, not giving up, not throwing in the towel, not dismissing or discarding someone else, but doing these things. And look at how he says that in verse 13. He doesn't just say bearing with one another. He says bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive. In this section of this little book, Resolving Everyday Conflict, he points to this area of Colossians and he says this, I'm just going to kind of summarize it for you. He said, God's approach begins with us understanding how graciously he treats us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your approach and my approach to others and bearing with one another and enduring with one another and not dismissing one another should begin with how he treats us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what does Paul say? You forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven you. And the writer says, our natural inclination is to kind of go to all these things that Paul's saying to do, to do, but he says, instead we need a different approach. We start with what God has done for us. He says, I begin by discovering I'm chosen by God, I'm dearly loved by God, God has done all that for me. And from these truths flow a different kind of life. Because God bears with me, I can bear with others. Because he forgives me, I can forgive. Because he loves me, I can love and live in harmony with others. See, the starting point to conflict and bearing and all this stuff isn't whether or not you and I can muster it up by ourselves or whether or not you and I have it in us by ourselves, the beginning point for us as Christians who have spiritual identity in Christ is that we begin by daily, daily remembering what he has done for us. Am I, am I the only one that, if I were to think back through these last seven days, could say, boy, God has really... He's, he's really been bearing with me. 
Have any other takers to that testimony? He bears with us. He forgives us in Christ. And he does so in such a way that we're then supposed to do that for others. In Romans 2, verse 4. Again, in in the book of Romans, the first chapter, Paul writes all these things about life and how people are abusing it and how people are are, are living lives that are are unfit for God and so on and so forth. And then he says in Romans 2, verse 4, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That word forbearance is just the noun version of this verb phrase, bearing with one another. And it's Paul saying, do you not realize that you should bear with one another because that's what he does with you? He bears with you. He's kind with you because he wants to lead you to repentance. And it's a fault for those of us who are in Christ to say, oh yeah, I've already repented. Repentance is ongoing in the body of Christ. Repentance is ongoing in the believer in Christ. A simple way of understanding that Romans 2-4 passage and forbearance and kindness is just to say it this way. It's God not giving us what we deserve. That's his forbearance towards us. If he bears with us in that sense, how can we do anything other to a brother or sister in Christ? Oh, but I need my pound of flesh. I need them to hurt. I need them to know what I felt like. I need them to know that that's not right. Well, that's the Holy Spirit's job. Not mine and not yours. Our job is to bear with them. Is to forgive them as we've been forgiven. To love them. Just as we close today, final, final thoughts. What happens when in the body of Christ we don't bear with one another? First thing is you're going to set yourself up for continual disappointment. Because if you're expecting every brother and sister in Christ in the church that you're a part of to always get it right, if you're expecting them to always be in tune with what you think, if you're expecting them to never slip up, then you're just setting yourself up for continual disappointment if you're not willing to bear with them and endure with them. Secondly, that, what that then leads to is false fellowship within the body of Christ. What I mean by false fellowship, well, it's just simply this. You, you're not bearing with them. You're not enduring with them. You, you're holding resentment. You're un, being unforgiving. And you see them on Sunday morning. You go, how you doing? I'm great. How are you? You see them at a church dinner, an event, everything going well, everything's going great. How about you guys? Everybody doing well? False fellowship. Looks good on the outside. It's horrible on the inside. And then thirdly, it's a damaging to your personal witness and to the witness of the church. Because let me say this. You know the phrase, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas? What happens in the church doesn't stay in the church. Particularly in small towns, small communities. Now we have this thing called social media where we all can be guilty of at any moment going, well, I'm going to let everybody know what I think about that pastor, that brother, that sister, that church. Every one of us have that, that temptation, have that guilt before us. 
You don't think people know and hear and read and understand that? Your witness is damaged when we don't bear with one another. I don't know what God intends to do for you today. As I've prayed this week, I've just prayed that he makes me a better person of bearing with one another. As I've prayed this week, I've prayed he makes me more forgiving. As I've prayed this week, I've prayed that he would continually remind me that what what common ground I have with you is that we are all who were sinners who were saved by Jesus Christ. I don't know what his intent is for you today, but whatever it is, you need to follow his lead. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pvcfrankfurt at gmail.com.